Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Matrix, the 1999 sci-fi classic written and directed by the Wachowski siblings and starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, and Carrie Ann Moss. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 88%, and the critics' consensus reads, thanks to the Wachowski's imaginative vision, The Matrix is a smartly crafted combination of spectacular action and groundbreaking special effects. Those groundbreaking special effects are the focus of our discussion today. My guest is Diana Giorgiudi, digital effects producer for the film. Diana, you've been working in the visual effects space for more than 40 years, and your post-Matrix credits include Ant-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming, and last year's Mulan, among others. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. It's great to be here, especially since, uh, in a way, it's honouring the fourth Matrix, which is due out very soon. That's very cool. (laughs) Not a coincidence that we're having this conversation now. Listeners, if you haven't seen the first three Matrix movies, this is your spoiler warning. But before we get there, let's first delve into your backstory, Diana. How'd you get started in the business? Oh, boy. I'm Australian, as you can probably tell from my accent. I started as a PA almost 42 years ago in Australia and I got involved in um, the editorial side of things originally as an editor's assistant, which back then was essentially operating big two-inch machines and that's how, you know, it was two-inch videotape and that's how things were done back then and the visual effects back in those days was just simple wipes and uh, star wipes or heart wipes or cross wipes and there was very little that was done visual effects wise other than simply you know editorial wise and then from there I worked many years in Australia about 12 years in Australia and then I started to hear about all this digital stuff going on so I moved to England because I'm Italian as well I was uh, I have a dual citizenship so I was able to go live and work in London And I worked on a couple of Bond films there. And I was happily freelancing at a company called Rushes, which at the time was owned by Richard Branson. And I got this call out of the blue asking if I would be interested in doing this film, Matrix, which was shooting already, shooting back in Australia. They'd been shooting three weeks and they knew that they needed some help. They did not know exactly what my role would be that someone had recommended me and they needed some help and would I be interested and that was on a Monday morning and I basically had a chat they asked me if I knew this certain software FileMaker Pro I lied I didn't know (laughs) I basically said yeah I know I know that I have no idea why I kind of went along with it you know, a little lightning bolt actually struck me and it just felt like I had to do it. And they even explained that it was a duo director, which is scary at the best of times because how do you get straight answers and which way do you go? All of those things. Everything should have been telling me to run away, but it was also at the same time drawing me in. And so I asked uh, when they needed me and they said now. And so by the Saturday, I was on a plane flying home I arrived at 10 p.m. at night. I went to the Matrix office and basically the office was open and working because at that point they were shooting in the city. So they were working and shooting weekends. 
I went there just to pick up the script so I could read it before I started work on Monday. And uh, I went home and I read the script till 3am in the morning and I thought, what the hell have I got myself into? On paper, Matrix was something else, something, you know, I'd never read before and also I had thought, how are we going to do some of these things? And essentially, when I turned up for work on my first day, what I learned very fast is my role was really going to be all about communication. It was very evident to me that there was a huge lack of our department, visual effects, sharing information to all the other departments who were expected to turn up on set each day, supplying us with all our crazy needs, like giant bullets you know, which we would have to mount on rods and stick in frame. No one was telling anyone that that's what our needs would be. So essentially, as I'm now a VFX producer, and I always say to everyone, I'm a glorified coordinator. And as a coordinator, one of the most important things you need to do is communicate, let people know what's happening, share information about what's needed, essentially as far ahead as you can because giant bullets can't be built in two minutes you know or overnight they need time to research uh, design get the design approved by the directors and everyone else uh, and then build them so there's a whole process and the big role or the big thing that sung out for me was that I needed to start gathering information and sharing it out to the departments. The initial thing I thought that would make life easy for everyone, and remember back 22 years ago, the internet and email was a very new thing. It wasn't like it is today. Today, we email people who are even in the room next door to us. So it's kind of crazy to think that way, but back then, 22 years ago, email was very new and it wasn't something we used all the time. So I made up this little chart called Two Weeks at a Glance and it was here's what we're going to need on set per day two weeks ahead of when we're shooting. And so the tricky thing with that was being able to keep up with all the shoot schedule changes. So every time something changed in the shoot schedule, I then had to change my list of what we were going to be needing. And then I would print them out and they would get distributed in hard copy to all the departments. So crazy as that sounds, only 22 years ago, that's how things were done. Nowadays, you would do that and you would email the charts out. That's how everything's done these days. One-liners are emailed out, block calendars, which is what I prefer actually to one-liners. I find block calendars much easier and quicker to read for our VFX needs anyway. I know one-liners are important for most other departments, knowing what numbered actors are appearing on what day so they know what costumes and what have you to have. But for us, the block calendars are the best things. And essentially that's what I had designed to help on the first matrix, help bring things into more clarity for all the other departments. You said they had already started filming when they brought you in. They just found you recommendations because of your other work and Mm -hmm. I don't know, thought you might want to come home to Australia for a bit. Was that part of the pitch? Yes, definitely. I had worked with Sally Goldberg, who was an all-in-one CG specialist. So back in those days, 
computer or CG artists basically did everything. They would model the asset or the character and then they would lay it out and they would animate and then they would render it out. They were individuals that would do the whole thing. Nowadays, you have the layout department and then you have the animation and then you have lighting TD and the lighting department. So it's all departments now that, you know, focus on various aspects of making CG elements in a film. Whereas back then, and there weren't that many of them, that was, you know, standalone person that would do it all. So Sally and I had worked on a lot of commercials and pop videos in London. And she had been scooped up off the back of doing a film called Eraser, um, which had some of the bigger effects type sequences and items. And she'd, she'd been scooped up. I can't remember how, what her connection was to a company in Massachusetts. And she worked on Eraser there. And then that same company then got involved in Matrix. And she was shipped down to Sydney. And when they started having issues or they knew they needed some help, she recommended me and she said, and Diana's Australian, so maybe she'll come home. <laughs> That's where I got the call um, on a Monday morning in England. And, uh, yeah, so then I found myself on a flight less than a week later on my way home to Australia, which was very exciting to go home and to work on what essentially was one of the biggest or the first biggest film Hollywood film that had been shot in Sydney at the Fox stages there now Disney so I turned up and uh, on my first day I'll never forget the art director I can't really repeat what he said but it was something along the lines of thank effing Christ you're here your effing department effing sucks. <laughs> and like, that's where I immediately like knew straight away that, okay, so what's the issue, Hugh? And, you know, he said, we never know what you guys want or what you need. So that's what led me to the communication element being thing. When I arrived on the Saturday night, the team was already in place. They had hired a VFX PA and a VFX coordinator. All of those roles were kind of new. No one really knew back then what, you know, those roles meant. They just knew that, you know, visual effects was something visually supporting special effects. The two mixed together. Special effects are more the physical effects, like explosions for real that we may or may not enhance. Back then, you could do a lot more in camera and you had, there were a lot less restrictions. For example, we were flying helicopters perilously close to buildings in Sydney. You can't do that anymore. We were exploding things and building things and crashing them a lot more than you can do now. There's so many more safety restrictions. And I think, you know, I'm not too sure why that is. Maybe there's been a lot more accidents. But back then we could do a lot more in camera. But these days there's a lot more restrictions. So, yes, so visual effects was a real new thing. We were working with special effects. They were providing real elements and we were going to either enhance or do some real CG Bullet time is a whole other thing, but I'll talk about that separately because that ended up becoming my big challenge and the main thing I dealt with. Planning those shots and then shooting them and doing them was like months in the works. Uh, so I had a lot of other 
things to do on a day-by-day basis, but planning the bullet time shots was always happening in the background for me. Now, I don't want to talk more about the bullet time, but first I want to follow up on something you said earlier. When you said you got the script and you read it, and your response was, how are we going to do some of these things? Was that because some of these effects were written into the script, like the what Chelsea's had imagined? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was definitely written into the script, like taking GR22, Government Roof 22, which is where Neo leans backwards uh, to avoid a bullet that flies over the top of him, one of the bullet time shots. Classic bullet time shots. Like, oh... How the hell are we going to do that? Obviously, before my arrival on the film, you know, John Gator had been working with the Wachowskis for, you know, months and then they'd been shooting tests actually back in Massachusetts. And that's John Gator, the visual effects supervisor. Yes. And also Kim Library was very, very pivotal in the whole process. Kim Library is the technical brains behind anything and everything he does. Now he's at Epic Games and he was VFX supervising as well. He's an ex-aeronautical engineer. I think he worked for Boeing for many years. He's English. John is American. You know, they found each other, I think, at this Mannix in Massachusetts. They were both working in that part of the country at the time. And, uh, and yeah, that's uh, how they worked together to plan and figure out how to do things. And I think the figuring it out of how to make these certain things work was very much Kim. He loves being given a challenge and then to figure it out. And I think it's a super a superhero talent of his. <laughs> Those kind of moments were what I read in the script thinking, how are we going to do it? You know, after settling in and talking and communicating, Kim wasn't down in Australia very much. He was back in um, Alameda at the time. So um, at the time, the offices of where um, Mannix Visual Effects was based was on Alameda Naval Base in um, San Francisco or the Bay Area. And that's where he was based. He had a little team there. All the artists that worked on for Mannix on their portion of the shots were based in Alameda. And then John Gator was in Sydney, as was myself, you know, three weeks into shooting. That's when I arrived. Eventually, when we got into the heavier, heftier shooting, Kim arranged for um, a digital effects supervisor. So I was the digital effects producer. And John was the VFX supervisor, but John was not an artist. He'd never done CG. He'd never been a compositor. His strength and background was working with Doug Trumbull in cameras. So he had a lot of, you know, DP camera experience and background. So eventually to help with some of the heftier complex shooting, VFX shooting, which was, you know, scheduled towards the end of the shoot, which was a six and a half month shoot, by the way. <laughs> Kim arranged for Yannick Sirs to come down and help um, support. There was also two units, main unit, second unit, and second unit naturally ended up, and they always usually are, for very big VFX um, uh, films. Second unit are usually the unit that end up doing most of the complex, time-consuming wire shooting, explosion shooting, special effects, visual effects stuff that's always second unit that does the bulk of that shooting. So Yannick was mostly on second unit and I was mostly on main unit with John. And I like to say that I was one of the world's first data wranglers. 
So back then, that wasn't a role. It wasn't known. It very much is so now. And the data wranglers are a very integral part of big VFX films these days. But back then, we were really just a young bunch of people, including the W's, that they had a vision. They were very precise and direct. They storyboarded the whole film. We shot the storyboards. You can literally play the coffee table book. You can flip through it and play the movie and you can see almost frame for frame the storyboards matching the film. So um, what we learned very quickly, we, we were talking about, you know, building VFX teams and I had mentioned we had a PA and we had a coordinator PAs run around doing things, picking up things. Coordinator is a support to the VFX supervisor and the digital effects producer, which is what I did. But on big, hefty VFX shoot days, it became very clear that what was needed, I often had to run out to the camera guys and get information from them. And John would say, go to camera A and get focal, tilt, you know, lens, serial number, all that information. And so I developed a little chart because it became a thing that I had to do and I had to do it for several cameras. And it was basically gathering the information that could be passed on to the visual effects houses and the artists doing the work. So they had a place to start knowing what focal length was being used on the particular shot they were going to be working on and what angle the camera was tilted at, how far the subject was from the camera. Very basic stuff. Nowadays, data wranglers, their um, kit and their job is, you know, much more complex and they're having to gather a lot more information than that. But back then, it was just something that John would say, I need this, I need that. So I would just run out. And it got to a point where the camera crew would see me running towards them and they'd start, they'd just start yelling out all the information. <laughs> so we developed a little sheet and, you know, handwritten. Uh, nowadays, it's all done on iPads with FileMaker Pro databases and drop-down menus where you can select all the various lenses and what have you. So much more automated now. But so it has to be because there's often not only is there the usual three cameras and, you know, one data wrangler, sometimes they're lucky and they may have an assistant or a PA to support them on set as well. But the pace on set is really much faster these days. Making all the shots and trying to get through everything in a day is fast paced. It's way more fast paced than it was on Matrix. So you may have heard me mention before that it was a six and a half month shoot. These days, most big VFX films are done in four months. They're shot in four months, probably because of cost, because, you know, it's anywhere in the range of 250 to 300 grand a day per unit or not. Second unit's usually much more scaled down and runs a lot leaner, like maybe 100 grand a day. But main unit crews, they're expensive to run per day. So most big VFX films are done in 16 weeks. That extra time you had on Matrix, was it budgeted that way because things like bullet time, you literally didn't know yet what was going to be involved? Tell me more about that and how it kind of came together. I would imagine that was the case. I wasn't privy to that. But I also think that's kind of the time that films were given those back then. I do believe that Matrix was a film that had unusual, you know, aspects to it that most other movies that were happening at the same time didn't. 
I would imagine that's why they gave it a little more time. And I just think these days they, you know, or back then they planned things a little bit, not better, but it was a little bit easier to plan back then because things were a lot simpler. I also think that um, some of it was to do with the amount of sets that had to be built and moving and shuffling them around. So the Fox stages in Sydney, uh, there's only six of them. So there had to be some very clever, smart, you know, use of the stage space and finishing a set, making sure you shot everything, striking it, moving it out, building the next one whilst you're off doing something else. So I just have very clear memory that the pace of shooting it wasn't slow, but it wasn't as pedal for metal. It wasn't as, you know, hair-raisingly fast. I do think also the bullet time aspects of the process definitely required a lot of time. There was a lot of prep time involved with those, so I'm sure that that was part of it. Also, the crew wasn't as big as they are these days. I would say Matrix would have been maybe 100 crew Whereas nowadays, the film I'm, I've just finished shooting, we were up to like three, 400 people in a day. So I don't know why that is, why there's that difference in just 20 years that crews are much bigger. I do think part of it is that on the current movie I'm doing, we have uh, a lot more action and people, uh, characters, actors, there's, you know, big battles and that sort of thing. So uh, there was the need for a lot more uh, department crew to manage all of those aspects. Also, I think any film that has horses involved, that adds a whole nother layer to it as well. And we had a lot of horses in my current project. So Matrix was, you know, much more contained, but it had some, again, you know, that script I read, it was like, how, how are we going to do some of these things? So, and we did do them. When it comes to the bullet time, tell me more about where the technology was at the time and what, whether it's technology or process, you literally had to invent to get those shots they wanted. Back then, there had been an effect done known as time slice, where the action in the shot was frozen and it was cool. I think it'd be done, it had been used in a couple of commercials uh, over in the UK, which is where I was based uh, when I got the call to, to go back home and do Matrix. So I was aware of a few cool, singular commercial shots. And so Time Slice was a slice in time, but the action and the people or characters in the shot were frozen. So the challenge that the Wachowskis wanted, they wanted to do that, but have the action moving in slow-mo. So slicing through time, but with movement. And they gave it the moniker of bullet time. So back then, there was no way to do the CG slow-mo bullets flying through frame. Essentially, the Wachowskis are very big comic book fans. And if you see and if you recall comic book panels where the hero is firing a bullet at the baddie and the way those are drawn by the artist is, you know, the bullet flies through the comic panel and there has rings following it to simulate, you know, it's moving through time and space slowly. The Wachowskis wanted to bring that to reality. And so that's why I think it was called bullet time because it is a moment where you follow the bullet slowly or you follow whatever's happening in slow-mo. Now we can do that all in the box in a computer, but 
back then we couldn't. So we had a lot of research. There was some testing, test shoots done before I started on the film. So by the time I started three weeks into shooting, they were just starting to plan the first of four bullet time shots in the movie, which essentially each shot required a few weeks of previous to figure out the camera move or the build of the camera array. The Wachowskis had storyboarded what they wanted. Those storyboards were given to these uh, this bullet time team who would be building the stills camera array. And they would, in a computer, plan out the camera build. So in the previous box or whatever, they would have all the stills camera mounted in a circle. Let's start with the Trinity moment in the beginning of the film where she jumps up. That was um, 120 cameras all at the same level in a circle and always mounted at either end of the stills camera rig, 120 stills cameras mounted as close as they could next to each other. At either end, there was a VistaVision camera, which I don't think they get used much anymore, but they could shoot super fast speed, maybe 200 frames. I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, they would be mounted on either end of the bullet time rig in portrait mode, so on the side. So those would roll and we would have real uh, slow-mo footage going into the stills array capture. And the difference with um, the bullet time that we did was that each camera, stills camera, was electronically wired into one button and the stills camera would fire however many milliseconds apart. You know, that was all controllable as well. So they would decide, you know, what speed. But at the push of one button, all the cameras would go. And then my job before that, I had to figure out how to get motion picture stock mounted onto spools that could be put into the stills cameras because you couldn't get motion picture stock like that. You only had ectochrome or whatever, you know, photographers used. So I had to go to the local lab in Sydney and see what they could do to help. So we figured out a way to mount strips of 24 frames of motion picture stock onto little spools that we could then load into the stills cameras. Then my next job was to figure out how to track the 120 stills cameras. Because what would happen, they would, you would hit the button and they would all fire, you know, sequentially. But due to static and other reasons, they would not all fire or record on the same frame. So at the end of each take, I would have to run to all 120 cameras and record what frame it had stopped on, knowing that the previous frame was the frame that we would need to utilise as the shot or the frame that we would be using to make the bullet time work. So if I noted on camera one it had stopped at frame 14, that meant frame 13 was the frame that we would be using later on. And, of course, all of this had to be telecined onto tape and then or, you know, onto um, it was Betamax. That's for, um, you know, dailies. And, of course, we went to a higher format for theatrical resolution, which is what the artists would work on. But in terms of editorial-wise and being able to cut with the footage, it was done to, I think, Betamax. So um, doing that and then, then emptying each camera 
with its little precious piece of information, putting it in a um, big tin and taking it to the lab was also my job, my precious babies. <laughs> and I would drive in my car myself to Atlab, which was the company back then in Sydney that did all this. And then they would have to process it and record it out for us. And then you would take the specific frames and then scan them into the computer? Like how? Yes. Back then, it was all done via a special film scanner. So the frame that was recorded as the key frame to be used, it would be scanned digitally. I can't remember what format we, we did it on back then. But it would be scanned digitally. And then those digital files would be put on a hard drive and they would be shipped to the vendor. The vendor that did the bullet time shots was Mannix Visual Effects. Again, they were based in Alameda in the Bay Area. And they would take those frames, put them in, in the box. Each bullet time shot took about six months. One artist each doing one of those shots for, you know, six months. One other part of the whole bullet time shot was when you put a 120 stills camera mounted, however, you know, the Trinity shape was all level and in a circle but the, you know, the government rooftop and the um, actually the, the subway shot with Neo and Smith uh, flying towards each other, that kind of went, started low and it was a circle as well, but it went, the camera positions moved higher by the end of the shot. So anyway, when you mount the cameras all next to each other, there's a space, you can only get them so close, um, the lenses. So there is a space in between and so the big job the artist had to do was interpolate the space between and create the image to join those individual frames together. So that was really the big part of doing those shots was the interpolation between each still frame and then also the blend from the vista vision into the still frames. You mentioned that there were four shots. We talked about Trinity versus the cops in the beginning the rooftop battle where Neo leans back and the bullets fly over him. And then the subway where they're both in the air is that fourth one when Morpheus is running across the office to the helicopter. But then you've also got the sprinklers going and such and that as well. Is that something that's added later or are all of these pretty much the same difficulty or were they, would you rank them in difficulty? They were all equally difficult except the Morpheus one, uh, as in, well, that was difficult for another reason. That was a much shorter rig and it was just a straight line. That shot happened in a small space and it was Morpheus running across frame. The tricky thing there was the water was real. That was not put in CG. So shooting and rigging everything and having it ready so that everything can be captured in the one push of a button because it, it would take months to build and prep and build and then to shoot a bullet time shot was like one second. <laughs> and, you know, if you did another take, the in-between was the time it took me to run around and record every single camera and then put in a new role into each camera as well because each one had its own role. Uh, sometimes the stills cameras would, you know, record the last frame. So you had to put a new film stock in each stills camera for each take. But each take took like Trinity on a wire rising up was, you know, one second to shoot. And we did do, we did do a few takes on each. The Morpheus one was a simpler rig to design and build but trickier in working out how to capture the water flying up. It was all done in camera, if you wish. 
but knowing, and back then, you know, we didn't have video tap. We couldn't see what we'd shot. You couldn't see what you were sh- you shot until the lab processed it all and put it all on, you know, a daily format that we could look at. And even then it was, you know, there was none of that interpolation. So you had to kind of look at it and go, okay, yeah, I think that would work. Setting up those rigs and striking them, the Morpheus one, we just had to pray and hope because we had to, that set had to be struck and moved on before we got the footage back and knew what we'd done. So, yeah, crazy times. Now, so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can see those four shots being the, honestly, the full focus of a team uh, throughout, but there's a lot of other visual effects in the movie. Which other ones struck you as groundbreaking, maybe that don't get as much attention in the shadow of bullet time? Ah, well, you know, there are a few, but what I'd like to note is that when you watch Matrix now, for me, it still holds up. And when you watch it, it feels like a really big visual effects film, but it was only 420 shots. So the beauty of what we did back then was because we didn't have the ability to do so much visual effects, the technology wasn't there. We had to think outside the box and we had to, you know, just save the visual effects up for the big things that couldn't be shot for real. So a lot more of the movie was shot in camera. So there are certain things that you, the viewer may think is visual effects, but it isn't. It was done in camera. And that was, I think, equally as clever as doing the visual effects themselves. So nowadays, most films like Matrix or that appear like Matrix that have big visual effects or cool moments or moments you'd think couldn't be done, on average, 1,500 shots, if not more. All Marvel films are like, you know, pushing 2,000 shots for a film because they have so many other worlds. The beauty of Matrix is that it was, you know, yes, there was Zion, which was very organic and very earthly based, but another world. And then there was the Matrix world, but they were both grounded in reality. So that helps when it comes to, you know, not looking too VFXy. So it was really only 420 shots. One of the other visual effects that seems like visually to look at very simple but was tricky to shoot were the recursion effects, which is, you know, there's one moment in the film where Keanu's doing what the W's would call chop socky, where, you know, it's a bit of kung fu and they want it, again, this is a comic book reference. When a comic book frame is drawn, they wanted the shadow or the, you know, the recursion of the action to be seen in the frame. And there's another moment on the government roof where one of the agents goes back and forth and you can see an image, you know, a repeat image of himself. Because he's dodging the bullets and so... Yeah, and the Wachowskis, in, you know, in honour of comic books, wanted to see that moment and they nicknamed it recursion effects. That was cool stuff. Tricky to shoot. Don't ask me. I can't remember, (laughs) but I know it was tricky. Another really cool aspect to the film was all the wire work. The wire work was all hand pulled. These days, a lot of wire work is done with ratchets and, you know, not always manually pulled. But everything in the first Matrix was, you know, two or three of Wu Ping's team jumping off a ladder to pull someone up or which I think often has much more natural movement to it. 
you know, depending on who the person was in the wire, it'd be one or two people jumping off a ladder, pulling the person up, or if it was two people, then there'd be two sets. It was always just so cool to watch how they would shoot all of those, being offset and watching that action. The action of the, um, the stunt team and the wire team was as cool as the footage itself. <laughs> When those scenes come back, is it someone in the visual effects department that's removing the wires or do you actually set up a separate department for cleanup, if you will? These days, yes. But back then we had three VFX companies on the project initially. Um, Amalgamated Pixels came in towards the end and did, I think, 20 shots. Um, But the main companies were Mannix, who were doing most of the bigger full CG shots and all the uh, Zion, Zion um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar shots and the tunnels and the sentinels, that was all Mannix, plus the harvester plucking the babies, that was Mannix. And then Animal Logic did a whole chunk of shots, as did a company called D-Film. Animal Logic and D-Film were both Sydney-based companies. Uh, D-Film don't exist anymore. Uh, Animal Logic still around but they are more heavily into animated films these days or hybrid animated live action movies again 420 shots so i think d film had like 200 and animal had 100 and something and then 20 something was done by uh, amalgamated pixels at the end oh 80 80 shots i think is what manix had 85 something like that so all of those companies did end up doing the cleanup and the wire work. So some of their shots were wire removals, which are the easier shots to do. Um, they're much easier now. Back then it would have been more painstaking and it would have been compositors doing it. Nowadays you have roto tracking and just paint teams that just do all that kind of work. I want to talk about how things have changed uh, since The Matrix. But first, you also worked on The Matrix sequels, both of which came out in 2003, which was also groundbreaking from a visual effects point of view. Talk to me about coming back for the sequels and at this point, how things might have been different than the first time. On the first film, again, you know, we, we were all just a bunch of young people trying to figure stuff out, learning on the job, which was great. It was incredible. So after learning everything we did, and pretty much soon after the film was released, the Wachowskis reached out to a few of us and asked if we would care to be involved in the sequels. And given our wonderful experience on the first one, all all of us said yes. Hell yes. Now, the first Matrix flew kind of under the radar in terms of studio involvement, um, I think Joel Silver and Lorenzo de Bonaventura were very pivotal in pushing the film through the Warner Brothers and supporting and protecting and what have you. But when off the back of the success of the first film, two and three, the studio wanted much more involvement. So dare I say it, the politics became a lot more tricky. There was a lot more presence with two and three. And then also, I'll never forget, the W sent me the two scripts and reading the first script was like, what the hell are we going to do this? Uh, Well, with two and three, even more so. In fact, (laughs) when they called me up and said, what do you think? I said, I have no idea how we're going to do this shit. It's just like, I don't know. What comes to mind is Neo running on top of the heads of hundreds of Agent Smiths. 
for me, that was just, even though we had just done what we did with the first Matrix, I couldn't even conceive how we were going to do that sort of stuff. We learnt very fast that they had worked with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers were keen for the sequels. They put some R&D money aside to work on the next big thing, which was digital humans. It was a huge leap. I'm not too sure we got there 100%. Certainly things are much further down the line now and digital humans, certainly in terms of action, I don't think we're there yet with close-ups or medium close-ups on digital humans talking to camera. I can still pick those out in films or even in, you know, streaming shows. So I don't know that we're there yet, but we certainly are there with digital action humans and creatures and everything. All of that stuff's really good these days. Back then, because that was 20 years ago, I was like, no hope in hell are we going to be able to do this. So they were, they were big, big, big scripts and with a lot more and a lot more action and a lot more characters. So, yeah, it just... Everything tripled in size, budget, amount of work. We shot first the whole freeway chase, and that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> the big uh, Zion underworld rave, which we had a thousand real actors or, you know, extras in that. None of them were digital. We really had a thousand people. And then also the Burley Brawl, which was the fight where Neo fights um, 100 Smiths. Those first three big sequences were shot first in Alameda in three months. And then we turned over a lot of those shots and got them into the works with the VFX companies. Took two or three months to do that. And then we moved to Australia and shot there for a year because we shot both two and three all together in one. So then we went to Australia for a year and shot everything else. So whilst we were shooting for a year in Australia, we had 600 shots already in the works. But those shots were so complex that they needed as much time as we could give them. Plus, usually back then with sequels, the studios would always want to have them at least release at least a year apart to make the most of it. But they, the Wachowskis, bless them, did not want to keep the audience waiting that long. So the deal was they would release them six months apart, which is another reason to get a lot of the work going ahead of time so we we had a chance. These days you can much more throw, there's more artists available now, there's more companies. You can turn visual effects around on a big film in tight times. I personally don't approve of it and I don't like it because it's hard and the hours are too long and it puts a lot of stress and strain on in various areas, um, but it can be done. But back then, you know, we took the time and we knew well ahead that we were going to have that six-month-apart release dates. So we were able to really plan for it. And so when you mentioned 420 shots on the first movie, similar numbers of shots for the second and third movie, or was that an area that expanded dramatically? It exploded So we had 600 for just those three sequences. I would say across both films, we would have been in the realm of 3,000 shots. So 20 years ago, 1,500 shots each movie, roughly. That's that's huge. That's a lot. Now, I, I mean, I don't know anything about Matrix 4, 
but it feels like from, you know, the trailers I've seen and a few of my friends that have worked on it that they've harked a little bit back to the constraint and the, the cleverness of the first one. I'd be surprised if the shot count is humongous. Also, another thing that boosts visual effects shot counts up a lot is we tend to get a lot of fix-it stuff nowadays. Nowadays, I think, and some people may shoot me, but I think we've become a little lazy. And a lot of people have probably heard this fix-it in post. And I think that does come up a lot. And even when we're on set and we want a blue screen put behind them, nowadays I hear filmmakers say, no, you can just roto. We don't have time to put a blue screen up. You can just roto around them and you can put the environment behind them. Just roto. I hate that. That's what I mean by laziness. And yes, it's true. It can be done. But roto doesn't always look the best. It doesn't always make the comps look good. And it's hard for us, you know. You get into those places where the filmmakers are saying, why doesn't the shot look real? And you want to yell to them because you made us roto it. Rotoing around hair is impossible to do. It's a double-edged sword. It is definitely something that I find us getting caught in the middle of these days is the filmmakers want the best-looking footage, but they're not always prepared to go the mile, the extra mile, and wait 10 minutes for a blue screen to come in. And That's how I feel the industry has changed a lot. Plus... The other big thing about our industry is now that they're streaming, sadly, the focus, I think a lot of studios are now focusing, scaling back on theatrical releases. They're still doing them and they're still going to put money into films that are more for a theatrical release, you know, epic or big stories. But now they're at the same time focusing more money into the streaming. So for me, it just feels like there's constantly a huge push for content, no matter whether the content's good or bad. It's about getting as much content as you can for your Disney Plus here, your, your Netflix and your Hulus and hoping that one of those things you put out there will be a hit. In my personal opinion, a lot of them are misses. But, you know, if you get a look at Squid Game, you know, who'd have thought that would do what it did? So there's a huge push for content, 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 race, 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 get more and more out there. The care and thought and the process and the passion is not there as much as it used to be. The passion now is more about content than it is about the filmmaking. Not saying that there still isn't great films out there and that everyone's lost the passion, but overall, when you take a big overall overview, look at things, there are still the little films or certain films that have that passion, but it's not there as much as it was back in the Matrix days and even the Matrix sequels days. And hopefully it feels to me like Matrix 4 is harking back to those days too. There are still those gems, but finding those gems too is impossible. Like what to watch next? How do you know which film to see? I'm a member now of BAFTA and the Academy and, and I am inundated with so many things to watch and leading up to the next year's voting and I, I don't know how I'm going to get through it all. So, yeah, that's my little spiel on the industry and how it's different as little as 20 years ago compared to now. It's, it's changed. I wouldn't say it's bad. I'd just say it's different. 
Now, I think in the visual effects space, and you've seen it over your career, you do have this interesting tension where the technology's gotten better, so things should be easier. But then, as you noted, there's more and more of a push towards having visual effects fix things in post, and also this huge appetite now. Has the technology and the demand for visual effects work, have those not been keeping in pace? Or again, are both of these developments, the demand and the sort of laziness, as you called it, are those more recent problems with the work here? Yeah, they're more recent. I would say with the advent of Netflix, they were on their own for a long time. But then I think other people started to, or other companies started to see, you know, what that meant and, you know, the kind of money they were making Netflix, that they wanted to get on that train. And I think once that started happening, that's when the push for more content, because if you have a streaming platform, you have to have a shit ton of stuff on it to keep your subscribers interested. And I think the advent of that and more and more and more means things are more rushed. Um, As to the fix-it stuff, I don't remember ever having to do any kind of vanity fixes on the first Matrix or even the sequels. Nowadays, we have a lot of vanities we have to do on people. Usually actors looking a little tired, younger actors, skin fixes, that sort of thing. That's what ends up bumping our shot count quite a bit. And they're simple shots, but everything still has to be tracked, bid and costed, covered, dropped in the cut, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a big machine now. It's a much bigger machine. You know, there's a lot more visual effects companies out there. I think there's all the big usual ones. And now there's a lot of smaller companies too that do the specialising, fix-it, wire removals, that sort of thing. But there's not enough. There's just the demand still outpaces what's available. What the idea would be for all those visual effects companies is that as soon as they're finishing this job they're currently working on, they've got their next one lined up, but it never works that way. They've either got five shows right now that they're working on delivering and then someone like a sixth show will come along and say, hey, have you got room? And and they have to turn the work away, but they've got room in July next year. Like that's the thing. I, on my current show, did have to reach out looking for a potential another vendor to pick up some slack, potential slack. We still don't know quite yet, but you start looking early on just to be covered. And a couple of the companies I've reached out to, well, yeah, we have availability in July, but not before then. So they're like, yeah, give us the work in July. But it's like, but no, that's not my window. I, I need it done by the end of April, end of May. So I think, you know, what every VFX facility or vendor would love is for everything to beautifully fit in back to back. Well, Diana, you've alluded somewhat mysteriously to your current project. Not sure if you can mention it. Where should people watch for your work next? <laughs> I am VFX producing on Dungeons and Dragons, which is one of the shows releasing in uh, early 2023. And it's a very different film. It's a comedy action and it's delightful. Very different set of visual effects. Obviously, half the namesake of the film means there'll probably be a dragon in it. (laughs) So it's fun. Working with these filmmakers has been uh, incredible and is still incredible and uh, something very different for me. I promised as I got to this point in my career that I would be a bit more picky and choosy and so I did choose this one and I'm very happy with my choice. 
I think you should all go see it and enjoy it. <laughs> Dan, you said 2023. We're going to have to wait a while to see that. As we mentioned earlier, the new Matrix movie, the fourth in the series, is coming out next week. And it was reassuring to hear what you said, that you thought they might be going back to some more classic approach to some of these visual shots, rather than fully lean in on some of the concerns we've had about where the industry's gone. Any other thoughts about the new movie? I can't wait to see it. I haven't been so keen to see a film in quite a while. So I think part of that is because I know and love the filmmakers. For a moment there, I might have been involved, but I had already committed to Dungeons, so um, I wasn't able to. But, you know, the people there and the people working on it are just joyous. And so part of it is knowing those people and being able to watch it and know the experience they went through and what they did as I visually see it. And then, of course, all the actors that I worked with, you know, for many years. So the first three films ended up being seven years of my life. So that was a long time to be in that family and it was a great family. So it's the family aspect of seeing, you know, the fourth one, which for a long time was never going to happen. There was a lot of pressure for that to happen and then finally it did. That's really cool. So part of it is that family and then part of it is just to see the story and where it's gone, where it's taken things. I'm very excited. Equally excited. Diana, you have to come back and tell us what you think after you've seen it. (laughs) Thanks for your time today. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Skin. Thanks for the honor and enjoy the film. Listeners, if you've gotten this far, you're probably as excited about the new Matrix film as I am. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Diana. If this is your introduction to the podcast, I hope you also check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb. So you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, thanks for sticking with us. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week with the season finale. And in honor of the holiday, we'll be talking about 8-Bit Christmas. When Netflix came about, I can't, I can't I remember signing on to them, maybe it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, when you would get the DVD in the mail and then you would post it back and then the next one in your list. I still do that, by the way. No there's way. Some movie, there's some movies that I can only get on DVD that I want to watch. So They still have that? Look, I don't even have a DVD player. <laughs> Yeah, I'm old, I'm old school like that. I do love the streaming aspect. In fact, now the Academy and BAFTA are not sending out DVDs anymore for screeners. It's all happening on, you know, special apps they have, and I love that. If you're in the office waiting for something to happen, you know, at night, you're sitting around waiting or whatever, or um, at home, or wh- you can you can just watch. And also, you know, stashing hundreds and hundreds of DVDs is a whole nother thing. <laughs>